the world that we live in is dominated by I. And I'm not just talking about uh, selfishness. I'm talking about Apple products. Uh, uh, we live in the world of iPhones, iWatches, iPads, iMacs, iTunes, iWork, iLife, iCloud. I could go on, but I won't. Apple technology. It's one of those things that they have done an amazing job at creating a market for themselves. Let me give you some of the numbers. Over a billion iPhones have been sold in 10 years between 2007 and 2017, and about 220 million on top of that last year. 376 million iPads, over 170 billion app downloads to these mobile devices. In iTunes, 35 billion songs were downloaded by May 2014, and they were only getting started at that point. But what's with the i, iPhone, iWatch, iPad? What's with the i? Well, Steve Jobs, back in 20 years ago now, said the meaning of i is included in such words like internet and individual and inform and instruct and inspire. So what he was trying to say was that the whole idea of putting the letter, letter I in front of their technology and their products was so that it, um, it was to tell us that it was going to be individually tailored to our needs. Our products can meet your lifestyle needs. It can blend and enhance your technology and your lifestyle and everything that's going on. It's all part of that. And their tagline is so good. There's an app for that. Brilliant. So simple, but it's so effective. Um, you want to write a book? Well, Apple, we've got an app for that. Buy our products. Oh, you want to take pictures? We have an app for that. Buy our products. <laughs> you want to find the temperature of any city in the world at any given time? Well, we have an app for that. You want to pay, play Candy Crush while ignoring your coworkers? We have an app for that as well. We have an app for that. And these applications, these little programs that go onto our phones and our products, um, they utilize them for our lifestyle. And yet, despite all the money that Apple have made and all the advertising, and no amount of technology will ever meet our deepest needs. Certainly, we definitely try to fill up those needs with as much technology as possible. We try and stay as busy as possible. But our deepest and most profound thirsts are not going to be met in an app or a lifestyle or a product. So forget about iPhone. I have a new app for you this morning. I thirst. For only God has the ability to quench that thirst. Technology does not. God does. And for two reasons. Number one, God is our manufacturer. God is the one who made us. He knows what we need more than what we think we need. He knows what exactly. What he, he made us. He knows us. He knows what will satisfy those real thirsts, those holes that are in our life. Second reason is because he became one of us. He lived a human life, experienced human experiences, like even what we're about to read about thirsting. He, he came and, and he can service our deepest needs because he knows exactly what they are. He knows the needs of the human heart. Now, as we come to the foot of the cross again, in John 19, 
verses 28 to 30, records the shortest of the seven statements that Jesus made on the cross. And we read, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, let me just remind you about the sequence of events that have taken place so far. Six hours in total, Jesus hung on the cross. We believe that Jesus was placed on the cross about nine o'clock in the morning. And from nine to noon, he made three statements on the cross. Three hours, three statements. The first was a statement of forgiveness. The word of forgiveness that we looked at a few weeks ago. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. The second was the statement of salvation, where even as soon as he offered that offer of forgiveness, the thief turned to him and said, remember me. And he says, no, no, today you'll be with me. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. The third statement was a statement of affection. We looked at that last Sunday morning. That's one that he spoke to his mother. And we studied last week as Mary and John. And he said, mother, uh, woman, behold your son. And then he spoke to John and says, behold your mother. Then after that, around noon, when the sun should have been shining at its brightest, whenever the day in in that Middle Eastern city should have been so bright, a pervasive darkness fell across the city, across the land, and there was silence on the cross. And Jesus said nothing except perhaps one statement that broke the silence, and it was a cry of anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This statement, though, is perhaps one of the most interesting phrases that Jesus spoke while on the cross. It's interesting because it stands out for the very fact that it doesn't really stand out. It would be the one that we would almost skip over to deal with some of those more profound ones. It sounds very boring, very normal, very ordinary, very human. And I think that's the point. I think that's the point. I hope people can maybe see that. Hope maybe not. Uh, John records this to give balance to the rest of his gospel. Remember, all the gospels give us four different angles, four different pictures of what Jesus was like. And the whole point was that Jesus, uh, for John, was that Jesus was not just a man, a gifted man, but that he is divine. He is God which is why we have the more poetic version of the Christmas story that we did just in December. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John's gospel is different to the other gospels. And we mentioned this last week, and I'm doing it again because this is important. These things do matter. Matthew is writing to the Jews to show us that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He fulfilled Scripture. He is the King. Mark writes to the Romans to show us that Jesus is the slave, the servant to all. Luke goes to the Greeks with all their philosophies and ideals about the perfect man in the human form. And he says, no, but Jesus is the perfect man. And then John takes on a bigger task and declares to the entire world, he is God. And then John 20 finishes by saying, all these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what John is all about. 
And so we, we read these things, and, and I've, even at the bottom there, I've put in this idea of when we get to even in Ezekiel and in, Romans, in Revelation 4, whenever you have these, all these re- strange creatures with four heads and animals, they're tying into the Gospels. They're tying into the four pictures that we see in Christ in, in the Gospels. And so Matthew, the king, is the lion. The servant is the ox, the animal that's used to plow the fields, a servant animal. Look, man, John, the eagle, a picture of the king of the, the heavens, as it were. And John, in this desire, we read of how he mo- Jesus moved hearts and healed bodies. He stilled storms and raised the dead. And he was able to say of himself, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And yet we see in Scripture as well that as a boy, Jesus asked questions, Luke 2. As a man, he was weary, John 4. He hungered in Matthew 4. He slept in Mark 4 and marveled in Mark 6. He wept and groaned in John 11. And now he says, and the crucifixion, I thirst. He is fully God, and he is also fully human. This morning, we want to talk about what Jesus knew, what Jesus said, and what Jesus did. That's the three points. Those three elements comprise this message. Jesus, knowing that um, all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. John wants us to realize that Jesus knew everything. He knew what was happening. He was fully aware of things that were around him, and he knew what people were thinking. He knew what motivated people. He knew what was characterizing them. He came whenever they came to him and whenever he came to them. He knew what time it was on the redemptive calendar, He knew it all. A couple of examples. John 2, Jesus performs miracles. And we're told that many believed in him, but whenever they saw the miracles that he did, John writes, Jesus would not commit himself to them because he knew all men and he knew what was in men. Jesus knew. In John 6, we're told that Jesus gave a message. It was a tough message to listen to, and some of the disciples were complaining to each other. They were groaning. It offended them. And the Bible tells us in John 6 that Jesus, knowing that his disciples were complaining, went over to them and said, hey, does that offend you, what I just said? It'd be pretty tough to sort of follow after Jesus if he was going to call you and everything that was going on in your head. Uh, That'd be a tough one. John 13, it's the Last Supper, It's about to begin, and John begins the chapter. And Jesus, knowing that the hour had come for him to depart this world and go to the Father, he knew what was happening. He knew what was going on. In the same upper room, John 16, Jesus makes the statement and made his disciples go, hold on, what what, what are you talking about? He says, a little while you'll see me no more, and again in a little while you will see me. What are you talking about, Jesus? What, 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 What are you saying? They didn't get it, and so he says, you're wondering what I meant when I said that, aren't you? And then he told them, and he knew it. He knew what was going on. He was fully aware of what time it was, of what was happening, what people's motives were. He saw it all. And here's Jesus, even on the cross, even on the cross, knowing that all things were accomplished. He knew. He knew every single thing up to this point was part of redemptive history. It was part of the plan. Nothing had surprised him. Nothing had taken him by uh, shock or, or, you know, it was like, oh, I wasn't planning for that. No, he knew everything. We really dug deep into this last Sunday night. 
And Christ said, why have you forsaken me? We went deep into that and the beautiful planet thought of that God was in control, even that lowest point, God was in control, which means that no matter what you're going through, God is still in control. And yet there was one thing that was still to be completed. And that's in Psalm 69, 21. And so he said, in order to complete Scripture, to complete the prophecy, he said, I thirst. Just pause for a moment here. Step back from the cross, because as you look at the crucifixion, most will look at it in one of two ways. One of two ways, but we need to look at it for both sides simultaneously. Two sides. One, one is looking at it from the human side, and the other is looking at it from the divine side, but we need to look at it from both angles. There is human responsibility. There's a divine action. There is human viewpoint. Um, this is a mistrial. It's a miscarriage of justice. This is men plotting and hating and betraying. And Jewish leaders lying, uh, creating false uh, witnesses against them. Pontius Pilate uh, flaking and cooperating with their scheme. That's a human level. It's all true. It happened. And yet from the divine level, from the before the foundations of the earth. This was the plan. The lamb who was slain. This was God's design all along. It was predicted all along. Psalm 69 is an incredible thing. It describes the suffering of the coming Messiah like Psalm 22 does. And in verse 21 here, it's on the screen. They gave me gall, or maybe your Bible will say vinegar, for, for my food and to quench my thirst, they offered me sour wine, um, or again, maybe vinegar, but sour wine. Sour wine was all that they had at, at the cross. It was the cheap wine. It was what the soldiers drank, the legionnaires kind of hooch, or you know, kind of homemade stuff or whatever happened to be, the cheap stuff that teenagers would try and drink to get themselves um, drunk. They don't really care about the taste. They don't care about the quality. They just want the, the hit. And some of you are like, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And so I'm worried about you see me afterwards. But this is like the cheap wine. That, it's that kind of idea. It's the cheap stuff. And the soldiers were, were drinking it and carrying out their duties. And they offered it to Christ. Now, it also says that they administered it to him with hyssop. John tells us that now hyssop. Hyssop is a weed that grows around Jerusalem. It's fairly common nothing special a long sort of stalk and then at the top there's like um these little buds that kind of all bloom up and out um it was kind of spongy in a sense and they used that uh, and they kind of sort of dipped the the spongy bit of the hyssop and they dipped it in the wine and it absorbed it up through the petals and then you're to try and drink it so imagine getting weeds out and dipping it and then giving it to someone and they're just pulling out the hyssop. And, but for, for a Jewish man, and there's something here to this, and I think I want to just show you. When, whenever they hear hyssop being used as a sponge and wine, they go back to Exodus chapter 12, to that Passover with Moses and, and that, that angel coming and passing over Jerusalem, uh, over Egypt. And um, what they did was they had to get that spotless lamb, kill the, kill the lamb, and use the hyssop to, to put the blood over the, the doorposts, over the frame of the posts, and the angel would pass over them. That's where they get Passover from. 
every Jewish ear listening to this would be thinking, hold, hold, hold on, Passover, blood, lamb, salvation, how, how fitting, what, what sacrifice, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, being crucified, sacrificed, at what festival is taking place in Jerusalem at this point? Passover. It's all tying in. And every single thing is being fulfilled and accomplished according to plan. Even Psalm 69. And even the new ones. And, and the typology of the hyssop being used for this event in Scripture might be fulfilled. He says, I thirst. Last Sunday night we were talking about this, how God is in control, never out of control. He was forsaken. So we would never have to be forsaken. That God could say, I will never leave you or forsake you. He was forsaken. This was always part of the plan, the sacrifice of God to take away the sins of the world. God is in control here. So important that we never lose sight of this. God is in control. Whatever you're going through, whatever it is, as hard as it maybe is to really grasp hold of, God is in control. Now again, I want to step back from the scenes here and I want you to see something. Have you ever considered the relationship that Jesus had with the Scriptures? Notice how he's, everything that he's been saying has been steeped in, in so much Scripture. Why have you forsaken me? Taken straight from Psalm 22. I thirst taken straight from Psalm 69. He had this wonderful relationship with the Scriptures and the reason every Christian should examine this is because I fear that Jesus' view of the Scripture, and in particular for, for Jesus, the Old Testament as it was then, is so different from our view. For those who claim to follow Jesus and to love Jesus and to be a Christian, our relationship with the Scriptures is so far removed from what His relationship was. And that should be a concern. In 64 places, 64 places in the New Testament, in just the Gospels, Jesus refers to Testament Scripture and always as the Word of God. And as always, it's something that was inherent and perfect and would never be broken. On five occasions, on five occasions, Jesus asked the Jewish leaders, He goes, uh, Have you not read? Have you not heard? Haven't you read what David said according brilliant. He, just because he was always, this is what he was basing from. And then when he challenged him, yeah, but Scripture says. You know what Scripture says, don't you? you? You believe what Scripture says, don't you? The passage of all passages that comes out of the mouth of Jesus were Matthew 5, 18. Matthew 5, 18 says, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle. That's the smallest little uh, word or, or um, comma from, a, uh, from the alphabet or the just like a, just a little letter. So the idea is not a single stroke of the pen will pass from the law till everything is fulfilled. Till everything is fulfilled. See, you have a lot of people that will say, okay, you know, I don't know if I really believe everything that's in the Bible. I'm not really sure if I would say it's fully inerrant and all that stuff, but I love Jesus. I really, I do. Well, really? Really? Because if you can't trust what Jesus, uh, can't trust Jesus in what he's saying about the Bible, are you going to trust him in everything else? Are we really going to take him as word? Because the one who you claim to follow, the one that you claim to love, the one you claim to worship, is the one who said that God's word cannot be broken. Not a little tittle can be broken. 
the Jesus that you claim to follow. Matthew 19 said that God created Adam and Eve, not evolution, not Big Bang. He created Adam and Eve. Jesus said that. Do we follow Jesus? Matthew 24, he said that there was a worldwide flood that happened in the days of Noah. Do we believe that? Luke 11, he claimed that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Do we believe that? Do we take that seriously? Jesus said that's what happened. I know that's a fishy story for some people. But for Jesus, it's Scripture. Scripture. All these miraculous things that Jesus said happened. That's the Jesus that we follow. That's his relationship with Scripture. He reads it. He sees it. He affirmed it. And we're reminded of that here as Jesus hangs on the cross and knew that all things were accomplished and Scripture might be fulfilled. He said, I thirst. He, he hung on Scripture. He held to it firmly. Let's, that's what he knew. Let's look at what he said. I thirst. Two words in English. In the Greek, it's just one. Dipso. Dipso. One word. The shortest of all the statements he makes on the cross. Now, when we hear those words, the veil is pushed back a wee bit more, and we understand something about the cross. First of all, the intensity of the cross. It reminds us that the victims of crucifixion went through an intense uh, physiological phenomena of, um, of dehydration. Intense dehydration. That the tissues of the body were being emptied of their fluids, and those tissues sent messages to the brain over and over again. I need water. I need dehydration. I need hydration. I, I thirst. I'm thirsty. Let me read you um, the words of Frederick Farr, who wrote the classic work on the life of Christ, describing what happened at the crucifixion. It says the unnatural position that is of the crucified victim, the unnatural position made a very every movement painful. The lacerated veins, the crushed tendons throb with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gangrened. That is when the victim took several days to die. Jesus took hours. The arteries, especially at the head and the stomach, become swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on, gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. Both he and other medical experts tell us that throughout the crucifixion, the victim having to pull themselves up, remember, if they're being nailed in, you're having to then use that wound to try and pull yourself up to breathe. <gasps> And you're sinking down again and pulling yourself up to breathe, agonizing. The muscles eventually would become paralyzed. The pectoral muscles in the chest, the costal muscles between the ribs, paralysis. And so it was easy to take in a breath, almost impossible to exhale. And the only way to exhale was to pull up painfully or to push up painfully on the spikes and let that breath out. It shows us that at this point in the crucifixion, almost the end, Jesus can't make any, many more words come out, and so he gives us one word, dipso. So I want you to imagine that we're told uh, he, he's, he's on the cross for, for three hours, and he says these other things to, to, the, um, 
to the, to, in prayer to the thieves, to, to Mary and John. There's three hours of silence, and then the darkness falls over the land. And then out of that darkness, he screams, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. I feel the fullness of it now. And it speaks of the intensity of the cross, but also the humanity of Jesus. See, it's ironic in so many different ways. Ironic that the giver of life is experiencing death and the quencher of human thirst is the one who says, I thirst. He said in John 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And now he is thirsty himself. The speaker of the world has parched lips. It's the humanity of Jesus. I've discovered something about evangelical Christians. And it's not universal, but I think it's common. We're very good at defending the deity of Jesus. We're not always very good at defending the humanity of Jesus. But did you know that the first assault on the Christian religion, on Christian doctrine, the first heresy to come into the church was not an attack on the deity of Christ. It was an attack on the humanity of Christ called Gnosticism. And so because of the whole debate and theologians introduced us to a new term, here's the term, the theanthropos, theanthropos. Jesus Christ is the theanthropic son of God. Comes from two Greek words, theos, meaning God, Anthropos, excuse me, meaning human. So Jesus is 100% God, 100% human. Not 50-50, not varying depending on what was going on. Well, when he was doing miracles, then it, you know, kind of the percentages lent over towards the theos bit, and when he was dying, it lent over towards the anthropos side. No, that's not how it was. He was both 100% God and human. Now, do I get this? Can I fully understand this? Can I wrap my head around this? I, I don't get it. I still don't get it. I have got to confess that, all right? So, I mean, it's like, I can't turn and say, oh, man, see this whole thing about the, the, the nature of God? Still can't do that. I can't do that. That's why Paul said in, in 1 Timothy, great is the mystery of godliness. It's a mystery. Can't fully understand it. That's why Isaiah, I love this, he, he says, he just puts them both together. For unto us a child is born, human. For unto us a son is given, God. And his name, singular. A son is given, a child is born, but his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Both natures are included in this prophetic single verse, and here is Jesus dying on the cross as a thirsty man. The word of suffering shows us the intensity of the cross, the humanity of Jesus, but also the humility of Christ. Paul said in Philippians 2, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. Jesus became at this point our sacrifice, our substitute. He humbled himself. What does it mean that he humbled himself? What does that mean? What does 
how does this show his humility? What way? How does it work out? Well, one thing is the fact that he was offered sour wine. Not once, but twice. When you go to Matthew 27, we're told that at the beginning of the crucifixion, as they were making their way up to the place called the skull, when they were making their way up to Golgotha, then he was offered wine mixed with gall or, or with myrrh. And he refused it. He, he turned it down. He refused it because gall, that myrrh, is a painkiller. It, it had a narcotic effect on, on the body and it deadened the pain. And so basically what was happening was uh, as he was going up, there was people in the crowd, maybe even soldiers, they were trying to get the people who were being crucified drunk. They were trying to get them high. They were trying to get them stoned. And the idea was that it would to um, increase the length of their agony. It would increase the length of how they would suffer by numbing some of the pain. And so Jesus refused it. He turned it down. Why? Because he wanted to make sure that his senses would be undiminished. He wanted to feel the full wrath of God so that he could, um, so that he could feel it all, take it all. But now all things are accomplished. All things have been fulfilled. And so he takes the sour wine now to quench his thirst without the narcotic involved. And it shows his humility. Remember on the night he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed this prayer, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup he was speaking of there was the cup of suffering. Jesus wouldn't let any human cup diminish the cup of suffering. And so he pushed it away. He refused it at first, but now he takes it without the narcotic. That's what Jesus knew. That's what Jesus said. Let me close very quickly with what Jesus did. A vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they put the sponge on it. Matthew will be dealing with this then on Friday. He said, it is finished. He drank the cup of suffering, and now he drinks a cup to quench his thirst. He becomes the sacrifice. He becomes the substitute. What did Jesus endure in that day? He endured darkness for three hours. He endured separation from his father. He cried, why have you forsaken me? Momentarily, he was separated from the father in close fellowship. Darkness, separation, burning, raging, thirst. What would that sound like? Darkness, separation, burning, thirst. To me, that sounds like the descriptions of hell. It sounds like the separate... When we go to the... the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, we get this idea of the thirst in hell. And so we have a picture on the cross that Christ is enduring the fullness of hell, what every lost soul will endure for eternity if they die outside of Christ. He took hell that we might have heaven. He took thirst that our thirst might be quenched. He took separation from the Father that we would never have to be separated or forsaken by Him. He took death that we might have life. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, tasted death for every man. He tasted death so we would not have to taste death. That's what the substitute is all about. That's what the sacrifice is all about. 
There's one scripture that I think puts it just so well. Second Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let me translate that to you into the, the Jeff International Version. At the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had committed every single sin by every single person who has ever lived. Or another way. At the cross, God treated Jesus like you and me so that he could treat you and me like Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's what he did. That's what he did. I thirst. God's app for us. You could write, I thirst over your life. Describes our pursuits, what we long for, what we want in life, the things that we pursue, the things that we value, the things that we desire the most. I thirst. It's a banner statement over who we are. We have a deep spiritual thirst. Every human being has it. In John 4, Jesus said to the woman in Samaria, it's as well, if you drink this water, you'll thirst again. We pursue material things. We pursue popularity. We pursue money. We pursue holidays. We pursue fame and fortune and friendships. And you'll thirst again. It will not satisfy. It will not quench that thirst. We need to go for the one who said, I thirst. The man on the cross. One final thing just as we close. It's fascinating when you think just a couple of months before Christ's crucifixion. We're in the same city of Jerusalem, a couple of hundred, away, hundred yards away from the temple. There's the Feast of Tabernacles taking place, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Jewish nation is celebrating God's provision of their forefathers in the desert, and there's an eight-day feast of celebration. Every day during that, thousands of people gathered in the temple for the Feast of Tabernacles. The high priest would, go, uh, would take a pitcher of water down to the pool of Siloam, put water in it, walk up to the temple with the whole crowd of people, and pour water at the base of the altar. And the people would shout and, uh, I was going to say, they would dance before the Lord just like David did. They would scream with enthusiasm and excitement and rejoice and cry with praises to God. All symbolic that God brought refreshing water out of the rock in the wilderness and provided for the people. And great, 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 great grandparents or whatever it was. Every day at the temple, they did that for eight days, except on the last day. On the last day, what John calls the great day, the eighth day of the feast, the priest took the pitcher down to the pool and walked up to the altar twice. The first time, there was the shouts and the joys and the jubilation as there had been the previous seven days. But on the second time, on the second time as he walked up from the pool of Siloam, it was a time of complete silence. There was a hush over all Jerusalem. And as the people would meditate on God's goodness in the past by quenching the thirst of their forefathers, but anticipating the coming Messiah who would eternally quench their thirst and meet their deepest needs, the coming Messiah. As they were meditating, 
In the silence, we are told in John 7 that Jesus, in the middle of the silence, as they were meditating the coming Messiah, he stands up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. And all heads went, Whoosh! Who said that? You know, it's just like church. You know, you're supposed to be quiet in church. You're supposed to be hidden in church. Someone shouts out, Whoosh! Who said that? Where did that come from? He did that. He said that. What's going on? And he cried out and the people looked at him and he made that promise and he says, for out of his innermost being will flow rivers, torrents of living water. If anyone was thirsty, let them come to me. What's the last invitation of Scripture? In Revelation 22, whoever is thirsty, whoever is thirsty, anyone got a deep longing that they haven't managed to fill? Whoever is thirsty, let him come and drink of the water of life. Our substitute died and was thirsty. So that you and I would never be. Let's pray. Lord, when we say thank you, when we say praise you, those words don't seem to be enough. They fall flat after considering the great sacrifice you made the substitutionary sacrifice that you made and that you would humbly take the full brunt of that suffering, the intensity of the pain, undiminished, unprotected, so that we would never be separated, so that we would never be thirsty, so that we might never die eternally, so that we might never experience the hell that you did. Our Father, we thank you. And then I pray for anyone here who has never said yes to Jesus, to the real Jesus, not some version that they've imagined, but the one who longs to, to be in control of their life, to, to stop the rebelling heart and to draw them in, to call them a son, a daughter, that they might never be forsaken, that they might never be abandoned, that they might never be thirsty again. Lord, I pray that even in this moment, in this stillness, in this quietness, Lord, that they might say yes to you. Lord, that they would repent of their rebellious ways, trying to fill up the, these broken cisterns in their lives that just can't hold any water, that keep them thirsty time and time again. Lord, that they would come to you, the source of abundant life, and that they would be surrendered to you in his name. Lord, we pray this. Amen. Folks, we're going to...